Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. Today, Michelle Woodward is coming back, and we're going to talk about a topic that Hero Boga and I talked about in a previous episode, and I'll put that link in the show notes. And I decided to do this not to pit one against the other because there's no right or wrong. I think it's fascinating to have different viewpoints about what it means to us. And I wanted to share that because these are two women that I highly respect and I really enjoy talking with. And I know the listeners, you have really enjoyed having them as guest co-hosts. So in no means is it to pit one person against the other. It's how can we explore a topic and see what the meaning is with different people and what insights can we learn? And that's what the show has been about for almost 11 years now. So I invite you to listen to this and go and take a listen to my show I did with Hero and then come up with what does val- what does value mean for you and what is owning your value and valuing what you bring mean to you because there's different perspectives. And remember, there's not a right answer. This is just great exploration for your brain. Thank you so much for listening. Michelle Woodward, my friend. Hello and How- welcome back. I'm so happy to be back. Every time you ask me, I just feel like I've been tapped on the shoulder by my fairy godmother. So thank you for having me. Yay. So today we're going to talk about a topic that I talked about with Hero, and I want to get your perspective on it. And I think, you know, that's just be fantastic. So the topic is owning your value and value what you bring. And I want to hear your thoughts about this. Well, first, let me just say that I have an amazingly strong girl crush on Hero Boga. Um, She and I have been friends for probably close to 10 years. Um, I really count on her as a trusted uh, person in my life and a friend, and I I think the world of her. And um, I don't know if I'm going to disagree with her or not, because I haven't heard your interview with her, but... um, but you know, this, this is the subject of a lot of my coaching, this, um, knowing your value and being able to honor your value and claim the value that you bring. And uh, so many of my clients struggle with this because I think as a society, you know, we've, we've told people, you know, don't be too big for your britches. Um, you know, don't be kind of arrogant. Um, and particularly women, you know, it's like, We've been trained to be the hostess, a lot of us, in whatever way. And the hostess serves the tray. And if there's anything left on the tray, the hostess takes it for herself. And if there's nothing on the tray, the hostess goes without. And so for a lot of my clients, especially my executive women clients, you have to learn how to be the hostess, but make sure that there's something for yourself and actually also serve things that you want to eat. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But don't we usually take ourselves out of the equation or don't most people take themselves out of the equation when they're the hostess? Yeah. Yes, I guess I'm, I must be hungry because I'm coming up with all food analogies. <laughs> but but it's, like, it's like one thing, one, one assignment I give my clients 
is who are struggling with this is to start having preferences. So that old thing was someone says, oh, you want to get lunch? Sure. What do you feel like eating? I don't know. What do you feel like? Right. The number of people who say, I don't know. What do you want to do? You, the small baby step that you can take in valuing yourself and your own needs is to say, when someone says, what do you want? What do you feel like for lunch is to say, I feel like Thai food. Or what movie do you want to go see? I want to go see Wonder Woman. For so many people, this is a big, huge step because their automatic reflex is to say, oh, whatever you want to do is fine with me. The hostess offering the tray, right? Instead of saying, mm, I kind of feel like steak. I mean, do you do you resonate with this idea, my friend? I love this. I love this idea. And, you know, it's interesting because sometimes when you don't have a preference, it actually makes it harder for the other person. Because well, and, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, you go. Well, it just makes it harder because if you say, if they say, well, what, you know, do you want a beer? And you say, yes. And they say, well, what do you want? Well, whatever you have the most of, there's a responsibility. Now do I have to, I've got to get you the right beer versus if you say, this is my favorite and they have it or they don't. And that's okay. Or if they tell you their choices and you pick one, it just makes it a lot simpler instead of that the ambiguity of what do they want? Or if somebody says, hey, I want to have steak, then you can decide, oh, do I want to have steak? Or actually, I'd rather have seafood. Could we maybe go to a place that has seafood and steak? The good old surf and turf uh, kind of solution. But you're, you, this raises such an amazingly important point. And let's just talk in sort of like a heteronormative way, right? In society. If a woman always says, oh, I don't care whatever you want, honey, the responsibility for the man in on a hetero, again, in a heteronormative sort of thing to always have to be the one that makes the decision. I can't tell you how many of my male clients and about 60% of my clients are men say, I don't feel like a full partner when I'm the one who has to always make the decisions. Mm. It's a lot of responsibility. I think it's 40% of women now are the primary breadwinners in their family, right? Mm -hmm. And majority of them say to me, I want a full partnership. But a lot of times they absolutely delegate decisions on things like food and where we go to movies and whether or not we go to this house or that house for drinks with our friends. Is in any relationship, whether it's a gay a relationship, a straight relationship, any any relationship, even a friendship, mm-hmm. if I constantly delegate decision making to somebody else, that's a lot of pressure for the other person. It is and it's not it's not reciprocal. Mm-hmm. So, do you think this stems then from just not owning your value? Yes, I think it's it's from feeling as though what I want doesn't really matter. Or it's inappropriate for me to want something. That's it. Yep. It's inappropriate for me to want something. And I do think that gets some, that's something that's a belief that gets programmed into us um, in many different ways. You should be grateful for whatever you get. Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of that comes from, I think a handed down, you know, messaging or experience. So for instance, if you are somebody who 
your parents or grandparents lived through the depression, you know, where for my family lived in Oklahoma through the depression that, you know, the heart of the Dust Bowl, mm-hmm. you know, if you had beans for dinner, you were lucky. So how dare you say you went steak? You know, we were lucky in the thirties to have a bowl of beans. So if that is handed down and you have this value from your family that whatever served to you should be grateful by golly, should just be grateful to have any food on your plate at all. It doesn't take into account your own experience and the own, your own facts of your life. You know, we recently in our family had a, a death in the family and the funeral was yesterday and I, I was not able to go. It was my actually my ex-husband's family, but my daughter uh, did go. And it was interesting, the number of family members that went. And it's interesting, the number of family members who didn't go because the airfare was whatever it was. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, if you got the money and the airfare is $400 and, and that's not going to mean you don't have anything to eat. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you go? You know what I mean? It's like that same message we have to be, you know, careful with our pennies is a sometimes a handed down message, which it affects your sense of value. It's that scarcity mindset instead of checking in with, okay, that may have been our reality, you know, a generation or two generations ago, but what is my current reality? So right. the question I always ask myself is, because I'm fiscally conservative, but the question I'll ask myself making this purchase, spending this money, will it hurt my family? You know, and the answer is usually no. Mm -hmm. And so then I think about, okay, is this something I want to do? (laughs) You know, is this something that would bring value in my life? And I go from there instead of just looking at the actual cost of the ticket. Mm -hmm. You know, and what is the responsibility to my family, right? I mean, I see this often a lot of times is that one one member of a of a couple is asking that question, what does this mean to my family? And then the other member is saying, what does this mean to me? So, for instance, there, a golf trip comes up and one says, I'm definitely going. All my pals are going. I'm going. And the other person's thinking, gosh, what does this mean for my family? Right. Whereas actually a little bit of both is good for both people. Right. A little bit of saying, is this good for me? And is this good for my family? Does this have an impact on my family? You know, being gone for a week for training, the way you and I do training sometimes, there's an impact on the family, but it's really good for me. And sometimes the family is actually better off when I'm not there for a week, (laughs) right? Because they actually kind of bond in a different way. They have experiences that bring them together. Mm Mm-hmm. But I know people who would never go on a week's training, ever, because the perceived impact on their family. And so does that mean that they're they're valuing their family over themselves? I think sometimes it's that they're not honoring themselves enough. That's what I would say. Is that different or is just that a nicer way to say it? <laughs> uh, that's funny. Um, no, I think I think it is. You know, sometimes we get stuck in a role, right? We define ourselves by a role. Our role is spouse and parent, 
and especially see, you know, as you know, and I think all the listeners who've listened, uh, you know, know I went through the whole midlife empty nest whole dealio. And, you know, so this definition of self is somebody's, well, divorce and then emptiness. So I'm like the trifecta. I'm the trifecta of life experiences. So, but, you know, when when you can no longer define yourself as somebody's partner, you can no longer define yourself really as a custodial parent. That's like, it's a moment of liberation if you choose it. And in that moment, you have to value yourself. I think I've told you this story before. The first, Both of my children, my daughter went to college and my son went to a training program um, within about two weeks of each other. Um, and so within two weeks, you know, I got someone to college, I've got someone to Boston, and I'm there all by myself in my enormous house. And I went to the grocery store. And it was one of those moments where you always remember But I'm in the grocery store doing my usual grocery run and I go to pull something off the shelf and I realize, oh, I don't actually eat that. My (laughs) daughter eats that, right? Oh, I don't have to buy that. That's what my son eats. And I stood there in the ketchup row and asked myself, Michelle, what is it that you want to eat? Because for the first time in like 25 years, I was only shopping for myself and I, I had to value what I wanted because there was nobody else to buy for. Mm-hmm. And I realized in that moment that I actually, I mean, of course, I always bought a few things that I really liked, but my whole shopping deal had been making sure somebody had the fruit leather that they loved. Somebody else had the juice that they preferred. They had the, you know, whatever else that they liked, the kind of bread they liked. I got to ask myself, what kind of bread do I want? What do I want to try? It was very liberating. So what did, um, what did you find out that you liked? Very little stuff. I mean, it's so funny. My, like, you know, I, I basically eat like grilled, some grilled protein and vegetables. I don't eat a lot of carbs anymore. You know, I've, as a mother, I always felt like I needed to have a starch, a protein and a vegetable. Right. Mm -hmm. And now I just pretty much don't have the starches because I don't need to fill up a teenagers. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it's, it's just kind of fascinating. So this owning your value, what are some other ways that people can own their value? Well, for instance, going in and asking for a raise or a promotion um, is a huge time to think about your value. And a lot of people don't ask for it because they're like, they, I'm so grateful to have a job. You know what I mean? I'm, you know, I could be fired at any moment. And the big shift that I'm seeing now is that, you know, the most recent um, unemployment figures are out and certainly around the United States. There are pockets, geographic pockets and demographic pockets where unemployment is still high. But across the country, unemployment is now below 4%. Where I live, it's below 3%. -hmm. So whereas in 2009, there might be 40 people standing in line for every job opening, now there are sometimes nobody standing in line for a job. And so employers have had to shift their mindset where it used to be, you know, we can let you go because there are 40 people that would take your job. 
Now it's all about retention and engagement. And in that environment, people can go to their bosses and say, hey, I've delivered these sorts of results. I had a a client last week who was uh, recruited to go take a a C-level job in a competitor organization and went, you know, through the process to find out that um, she is underpaid in the marketplace by about 30%. Wow. So she came back to her employer and said, I am underpaid by 30%. I just was recruited and we are at risk. Our organization is at risk. If everybody's underpaid, then our best people are going to be snapped up and we need to do a a salary review, not just for me, but for the health of the organization. That's somebody who understands her value, right? And can communicate it. So this is one area now the, the market has shifted. And I really want everybody to know the market has shifted. Employers may not have gotten the word, but when your people start to be poached, you get the word. When you see other people leaving because they're being recruited to other jobs, that's the opportunity for any of us to go in and say, I bring enormous value. Here's the successes I've had in the last year, the last 18 months, and I need to have my salary adjusted, um, you know, in relation to the value that I bring. And it's really hard for people to do that. That's why sometimes working with a coach who, you know, I don't have a dog in the fight, you don't have a dog in the fight, to really talk through how you make this this pitch can really pay off, literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. Well, that's such a huge one because people can feel so vulnerable by owning their value in their workplace. Right, right. And so overcoming that fear and just really sticking to the facts. Here is the value I bring to this company, to this organization. Right. When do you think they also need to be prepared for the worst case scenario? I think everybody needs to. Okay. So years ago, Pam Slim, our mutual friend, and I did this program called Career Invention. I think it was like 2010. And one of our key tenets was that everybody needs to approach their work as if they're a freelancer or consultant, is that anybody can be fired today for any reason. And that is still true. Mm -hmm. Uh, CEOs can be fired for no particular reason, you know, people at every level of an organization. So you need to conduct yourself like a consultant or a freelancer, like have that kind of commitment, want to do a good job, but hold on loosely as the old song would say, hold on loosely, because if you're not getting the raises you want, you're not getting the assignments you want, you can move on in today's economy in a way that you may feel like you you weren't able to do. People who understand their value don't stay too long in a dead-end job. I, I see a lot of people, I have seen over the years, a lot of people stay in jobs way too long because they're so terrified of the job search process which means that they're they're underpaid by 30%, which means they're not growing, which means they're kind of, you know, stuck and stale. And then that kind of snowfalls, that's not the word, is it snowballs, into, um, you know, maybe not having up-to-date skills. So when you know your value and you conduct yourself as if you're a consultant or a freelancer, you are always looking out for your best interest, but you have to know your value and you have to know what you bring to the table. 
And so how does one figure out what they value or what their value is? I think you have to believe your performance review. (laughs) I mean, you have to believe when people give you positive feedback. Like a lot of times people get positive feedback and they're like, oh, yeah, but that was just a freaking fluke. (laughs) Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, right. It's just a fluke. Why do you think people do that, Corinne? Um, why do I think people do that? Um, don't be too big for your britches. Um, I think there's been programming from family of origin. I think there's been programming in our education. Uh, and then culturally let's, let's keep people small. Um, and, and so it's, I think there's a lot of that that goes on and, um, so then they get, they get small in their life. It's, and cause who do you think you are? And it's, and it's an interesting thing too, cause I do think there's some of it has to do with about gender. Um, but those I think are also just goes back to the programming. What do you think? Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. I, I've been reading the book, a hillbilly elegy by JD Vance. Have you heard about this book? No. It's a kind of took, took the book world by storm, um, kind of the end of 2016. And it's a story of, um, poor white people in the United States and the um, the mindset that that goes on from people who grew up in sort of like Appalachia in Kentucky and you know West Virginia that whole swath of Appalachia and where they even if they move they take these values and some of the values are that belongingness togetherness identi- identifying with the group. And, you know, it's like that old game whack-a-mole, you know, that used to see at like carnivals. For a lot of groups, a lot of people have a value around belonging. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're in within crowd in some ways of their own making. And if you, st- if you stand up and put your head up, you get whacked by your community. And so to state and claim your value, there's a threat that you're going to be excised from the group that you want to belong to. This guy in Hillbilly Elegy, uh, J.D. Vance, um, was one of the first people in his family to go to college and ended up going to Yale Law School. And he talks about how even that, you know, people teased and made fun and, um, and he felt separate and other from his community. And I think that there is that feeling. You know, if you if you come from a family where nobody went to college and you went to college and suddenly you're making, you know, $150,000 a year and you're driving, you know, a new model car and you've got a house and the house is nice and it's maybe it's paid off and you have family members that are in trailer parks. It's a huge dissonance in life to, to live in that uh, kind of juxtaposition. So that's like claiming your value has a negative side for, for some people in some groups. Have, have you ever seen that? I would see you see in athletics all the time. So say more about that. Um, so, well, one of the things, you know, about swimming is that there's, you get times, right? It all comes down to what is your time. And there's such a scarcity mindset around time. So you, and this happens a lot more on the girl sides, but it can happen on both. But, um, and young girls are pretty fierce. They can be fierce. And then at some point, typically the ages of 11 to 14, it's that whole idea of, you know, they, they're worried about belonging and their friends get threatened. Oh, you're becoming the superstar. We need to bring you down. 
Mm-hmm. And in the in the crazy thing is, is that there's no. It's not like we'll just use double O. No, it's not like there's only so many double O's or so many fifty four hundred butterflies. You know that the that the clocks are going to give out, right? And there's unlimited. It does. It's unlimited how many kids can go fifty four and hundred butterfly. But because we have this fear, because we have the scarcity mindset, it's like, oh, let's shut that person down instead of thinking, oh, well, if that's possible for them, what is possible for me? And let me go make my own strides. And so you see that there's kind of that mean girl, queen bee tendency that happens um, in that age group because, um, and then you see kids quitting also because they give up on themselves. Um, and and it it takes a lot of courage to go and and blow their mind on what they can achieve and to pursue it because you would think that the teammates would actually be the supporters, but a lot of time the teammates will not. Like for instance, when I was in college, um, my junior year, I was training and for some reason our practices ended 15 minutes early on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so I asked my coach if I could just stay in and finish, you know, do get an extra 15 minutes in. And, and I was kind of a fanatic about yardage training because that was my programming um, growing up. And uh, she said, sure. And so I would do that because I wanted to win a national title. And I knew these girls in North Dakota were the ones that I'd have to beat. And the women on the team would say snarky remarks all the time of, oh, you're trying to get extra credit from Barb. And, you know, and, and Barb wasn't like that. So that was my coach. Um, and I just had to uh, let the noise, let the critics go by and keep showing up and focusing on the goal that I wanted. But it created tension. And but the other side is, is that there's a huge difference between we, what we think is belonging, but it's actually we're trying to fit in. So we're right. discounting our own self to fit in with this group. And we may be giving up on our own goals, our own pursuits, whether it's going to Yale, whether, whether it's being a CEO, you know, despite where we come from. And we, we, we think we're fitting, we think we're belonging, but it's fitting in and fitting in is really painful. Yes, because sometimes the fitting in is really validating somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if if I like this book, Hillbilly Elegy, you know, the um, the grandparents, his grandparents who are Kentuckians who, you know, swear and um, you know, wave weapons and get into fights and all that other stuff, you know, if I want to validate that they're making the right choices, then I would swear and wave weapons and get into fights all the time too, because I am showing them that their behavior is not aberrant, mm-hmm. right? Like if you had gotten out of the pool and gone with your the other girls, you would have shown them that their behavior is not aberrant. Mm-hmm. But when you own your own value and you know, you know what you bring and you know who you are, you can be separate and be okay with it. You know, in other words, if I was a violinist and I was asked to be a soloist with the National Symphony Orchestra, if I could say, well, gosh, that's going to make my fellows in my study group upset. Or I could say, that's great. I've worked hard for this. I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that you're not taking away from other people, right? So if you, if you choose to be your, the first college educated in your family, and that was my story too. Like my dad's family was very blue collar and uh, they were really upset that I went off to college and that my dad mm. was, you know, so helping support me to get a college education. They thought I was taking from the family. 
And, um, and it was like another way of, again, trying to make me small and say, you know, again, who do you think you are? Do you think you're better than us? And the reality was, I didn't think I was better than anybody. I was just pursuing something that was in line with my family's values and in line with what I wanted to do next. And, and that's, you know, that's the thing that I think is interesting is that when the people that believe that being, they're being left behind, they're stuck in their own shame storm of there's something wrong with us and that's why they're leaving us. Right. Cause if they could, if they could really be, um, uh, in a beautiful mind state of mind, they could be like, wow, go to Yale. This is going to be fantastic. I'm so excited for you, you know, and I can't wait to hear about it. There's going to be growth for everybody, right? It's more Mm -hmm. that growth mindset that you and I talk about all the time. But when we let fear and shame come in, it shuts us down. And then that becomes highly corrosive. And we use shame to shut everybody else down and to keep them small or they run away. (laughs) And uh, which is what I kind of basically did with my, you know, my dad's family is that I got really mad at them and I just stopped engaging because I didn't want to hear that the naysaying anymore. But, you know, and the promise is, is that when I think about my closest friends, my closest friends are the ones who say, oh, my gosh, you, you were featured in the Wall Street Journal. That is so awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, what was that like? Right. And, and I'm the same way. Um, you know, they have a, a great success, a great um, achievement. I'm the first person to say, way to go. That's awesome. And if I had any friend who was jealous or snipey or whatever, they wouldn't actually be my friend for very long. And I know that sounds maybe kind of dismissive, but you know what I've learned is I don't need that energy. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody's going to be like, well, what's the word, jealous or whatever, mm-hmm. I, then they probably should find other people to hang with. Mm-hmm. Because what I'm going to be is I'm going to be supportive of their success. I'm going to be their friend, their their biggest cheerleader. And my hope is they'll do the exact same thing for me. And I'm just saying for everybody out there, there are those people out there. You just have to find them mm-hmm. that have genuine joy in your success. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's where you have to be brave because if you're going from this group that you are a part of and whether they're, they were, you know, a group that you were born into or like with my team, um, you know, a group that I came together with in college. But if you're going from that group and then you're willing, you know, to go find a new group, this is where you have to be brave because there's that space in there where you may be more alone and to be comfortable with that. And I think that's where like owning your value becomes really important. What do you think, Michelle? I think it's, you know, I think you do have to be brave and you do have to, I mean, realize that you're never really alone, right? I mean, there are always wonderful people out there. I've had people say to me, gosh, nobody makes a new friend over 40. And I'm like, wait a minute, I've made a zillion friends over 40. You know what I mean? I'm like, I I make a new friend that seems like every week, if not every day. Mm -hmm. And, And so the idea that, you know, it's kind of like Carol Dweck's mindset, the idea that, you know, you have a fixed number of friends and that's all the friends you're ever going to have. It's kind of like that, you know, fixed mindset. And the growth mindset is I'm going to keep meeting really interesting people. Mm -hmm. And the idea is like right now, if you're on the outs with some group of friends or you feel like they're not really supporting you the way you want to do it, 
like my Angela would say, when they show you who they are, believe them the first time. Mm-hmm. You know, it is possible to find a new crowd of friends who really do support you. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. You just, you will have to be brave and realize that. That's right. That right. This is what this, and it's uncomfortable. It's not this beautiful pathway and just realize, but that there are people out there and having the confidence and the belief that there are people who are a great fit for you, who are going to be, Hey, Michelle, that's so awesome. You were in the wall street journal. What was that like? Right. Mm-hmm. You, you want people like that. And not that, not that it's about blowing smoke because that's not what you're referring to, but I just want to get that clarification, but people who are really in your support seats and, mm-hmm. and who are excited for you and they're not worried that, Oh no, Michelle, you got featured. And so that means now I'm a horrible coach. Like that's just ridiculous, right? right? There's, there's nothing in it for anybody in there. And, um, or, or even worse is when people like you're in the wall street journal and people then start to say like, you know, she's not really that talented. You know, I don't know who'd she sleep with to get that job. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are people who, who their reaction to you sticking your head up because mm-hmm. believe me, trust me, doing a, an interview with the wall street journal is, is nerve wracking. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you have to be so careful about what you say, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, but I've seen this, like people like, oh my gosh, that person was in Oprah magazine, but you know, she's not really that, that good. Mm-hmm. I can't believe they picked her. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of small and petty. And what do you so, think that's all about? I don't know. Feeling like that not enoughness or feeling that there's only so many opportunities to go around. Uh, that if Oprah features somebody, she, that means Oprah will never feature anybody ever again, mm-hmm. which is sort of that, again, that lack in scarcity. What do you, what do you think it is? I think it's totally that. I think it's, it's that scarcity mindset that, um, and it's a really fixed mindset. So, you know, Carol Dweck was here recently and I asked her, um, if there was a correlation, if they've done research with a correlation with their, the, the mindsets and feelings. And the, and they're looking at that and they're looking at her Brit Brene Brown's work too with shame, but you know definitely like uh, fear, anger, shame is along with a fixed mindset. <clears throat> Where confidence, I can't remember the feeling states that she talked about is more of a growth mindset, you know. And she mm-hmm. one of the examples she goes is that you know a kid could be failing in something, but they're like, this is amazing. Look at this information, and she's like, but you're failing. They're like, but this is so amazing. Mm-hmm. Where somebody else in a fixed mindset, it's like when they're feeling, they're like, oh, well, see, of course, I'm a loser. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really not smart. I really don't have this title of, you know, a gifted student because a lot of her work is with students. But we, so we, you know, we worry about losing those titles or I'm a fraud. You know, I'm not really an investment banker. You know, mm-hmm. I really, because I don't know everything. Right. right. And uh, that's our fixed mindset. So. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting. Um, in Myers-Briggs, when I uh, did the Myers-Briggs training, and they give you the very detailed, um, you know, summary of your type, uh, which is not available in the regular assessment. One of the first things it said is, you know, you, you don't have a very strong need for belonging. And it's true, I don't have a very strong need for belonging, never have. Mm-hmm. Um it's never been, you know, the kind of the anguish of, you know, I'm leaving my friends from high school, you know, 
kind of deal. And, um, and so I do think that makes me kind of an anomaly in mm-hmm. some ways, because I don't, I don't really, I don't really have that. And I don't think that makes me a psychopath. I just think it's, you know, kind of temperamentally, it, it's just doesn't belonging has never really mattered to me. Mm-hmm. And I do think that it's, it's important to understand, you know, when you're kind of evaluating, am I, am I owning my own value? Do I, do I, um, appreciate what I bring? Am I able to make sure that there's always something left for me on the tray? You know, um, is to also understand things about your own temperament and that sometimes the conflict is that people are telling you what you should feel as opposed to what you actually do feel. Mm. Mm. Yes. And then we listen to that, what you should feel. Right. (laughs) Instead of question that, like, wait, is that how I feel? Do I want to feel that way? Right. Like when you have an estranged relationship with anybody, like whatever, whoever the estranged estrangement might be, and someone says, but don't you think you're going to feel really bad when that person dies? Mm-hmm. Like I've heard it a million times. People say like I, somebody said was I was in a conversation with somebody last week and they're like, you know, kind of holier than thou sniff, sniff. I'm sure that he will really regret when that person passes away. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't actually know that that's going to be the case, <laughs> right? Because I don't know. I don't know. They must have a good reason for doing what they're doing. That, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's the thing. And it's it's so funny when we ascribe, you know, our own value, our own values to the actions of other people. We say, oh, we would feel, mm-hmm. you know, we imagine we would feel really guilty or sad. But that doesn't mean somebody else is going to. Well, that goes back to like one of the best things I ever learned from Byron Katie is when, you know, Katie talked about the three types of business, your Mm -hmm. business, my business or God's business. I changed that to the weather's business, but, um, (laughs) you know, because when in my town, everybody likes to complain about how hot it is. And I'm always confused because we know it's going to be triple digits. That's just what it is. But to complain about it does nothing for us. And, and I always think about Al Bundy in Married, it was Married with Children. I don't know if you ever saw that, but there was this one episode and, and I didn't really like the show, but there was one episode where his AC unit wasn't working. And I don't know if he, you know, would, for whatever reason, he wasn't getting it fixed, but he was taking care of his business. Like his family was all upset. They were angry. You know, they were hot. So what he did is he took his family to the grocery store and they sat in the lawn chairs and they bought drinks and they took care of their business, right? They couldn't do anything about the heat outside and he wasn't going to spend the money to fix his unit at home. So he took care of his business. And, and I remember her saying, you know, we're always so busy taking care of other people's business or being in other people's business, just like you had mentioned. But when we're in other people's business, who's in our own, right? Being in our own business is a full-time job. Right. And, and a lot of times I think it goes like, we don't, we, we don't want to look. I mean, maybe we're, we're ashamed of the mess that it is. And, but that's okay. We all have these messes and stuff. And, but just look at it and be in your own business and clean that up versus spending so much time in other people's business. Yeah. That is a very liberating thing that Katie, you know, brought out. And I think that was in her very first book, wasn't it? Um, the Her Loving What Is. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which was a very, for me, a, a really illuminating and I, I would have to say life-changing book, um, Loving What Is, uh, 
really made a huge difference in in my my path and uh, my understanding of myself. And uh, I, you know, I highly recommend that book to everybody. So why was it life changing for you? Um, because I think that idea of, you know, whose business am I in and, and who's managing my own business and also just coming to that acceptance of, of this is what is, you know, it, and I know it's right. How do I know it's right? Because it's what's happening. Right. I mean, that, that to me is, uh, you can, you know, she, she wrote, she talks about, you know, arguing with reality is like trying to teach a cat to bark. <laughs> Right. And and it's like, I don't know how many times I've thought to myself, OK, you're trying to teach a cat to bark. What's up with that? You know what I mean? And just this radical acceptance of of reality is, I think, what what Katie's um, work really calls us to do is to to just radically accept reality. And, um, you know, I don't think that's something that we all are taught or even you know, realize is possible. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you don't have dreams, right? It doesn't mean you don't have aspirations and set intentions and, you know, have goals to work towards. It just means that this is what, what really is. And I, it must be right because it's what's happening. Well, and then when you accept your reality, then you go, okay, where do I want to move, go forward to? Right. Right. But if you're arguing, if you're distracting with what is, so here's an example, so we can have a concrete example. I flew to Texas, I don't know, a couple weekends ago, and it was a day in, day out trip, and it was out of San Francisco because it just had better time. So that's like a 90 minute drive without traffic for me versus my Sacramento airport, which is like 20 some minutes. Um, And uh, the Lyft driver was coming to pick us up from my sister's house to bring us home, and it was my daughter and myself. And he was, he got lost. We get in and I say, okay, just so you know, like, this is what time our flight is at. We're now further behind, you know, thank you so much. We need to get to the airport. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I'm chatting with my daughter and I'm just confident that, okay, we're still going to make it. We don't have to check luggage. Security just has to be clear and we'll go. And then we're flying out of Dallas, Fort Worth. So we, we, drive along. And then all of a sudden I notice he's like on this road. And I thought, this is interesting. He's not taking the freeway. Like, okay. And I'm starting to get a little bit more nervous because I look at the time and, you know, are we going to make mm-hmm. it? Well, lo and behold, we're on a service road and we get lost for 20 minutes on these service oh, roads. Oh no. Yes. So, and then he drives away from the airport. So in the middle of all this, like my goal was we are going to make this flight, right? That was my goal weeks before Yes, I can be crazy thinking I can fly in and out of San Francisco and Dallas-Fort Worth in the same day and not have weather problems, but I wasn't even going to be concerned about that. The option the it was we will we will make these flights. But then there was a part of me that wanted to get really upset like an indulgent drama of like I can't believe I came on this trip. This is ridiculous, right? Or then I wanted to call my brother-in-law to come pick us up. Again, that's not going to help anything because I don't even know where we are. And that, mm-hmm. you know, time-wise, it's, so my brain kept wanting to go over here and not accept reality. And I kept going, okay, but the reality is, this is where I am. I want to get to that American Airlines flight. And we pulled up with less than 10 minutes to get on our flight. And wow. we walked in the gate door and the security was wide open, ran through it. The gate happened to be there. I didn't realize until I was talking to a client, I think it was this past week, where she explained to me that American Airlines, that's the hub of Dallas-Fort Worth. And so mm. we have tons of gates throughout the airport. And that's a massive airport. 
It is how, huge. How fortunate was I to go to the right gate where the security was there and the gate was around the corner, like literally right there. I wasn't running through the airport or anything. Like I was right there, right? But it goes back to what you're talking about. Like, okay, my reality was we were lost, you know, and I had to accept that and focus on how do we get to the airport or get to the airport, get on my flight. And that's what I did. But a lot of times we want to go to the side, what I call the side, and get caught up in all the drama about other stuff. Like I could be in his business of what, you know, why he wasn't getting us there. And I, I could be in my sister's business and everybody else's, but none of that helped. It was like to get me to the airport. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the shift from deficit thinking, right. To value thinking is deficit thinking is I'm not enough. I don't have enough. You know, I, I'm not comfortable with what I already have. Mm-hmm. Right. To the value thinking is everything's perfect. It's going to all work out. Mm-hmm. I I have what I need to do what I want to do. And if I don't have what I need, I can get it. It's like such a different mindset. Well, and then when you're in that mindset, right, the value thinking mindset, then you can figure things out. Then your brain can work and you can figure out like, okay, versus when you're in that, what you call it, the deficit thinking it's so much easier to crumble right? not be able to figure things out. I, I see a lot of people who are, have some sort of situation, like whatever. They, they've, got a, they've got a project that's delivered. They've got to you know, do a PowerPoint presentation. They've got a whatever. And they come from it with a deficit mm-hmm. feeling. So they feel like they've got a cram. Um, there's always more to learn, which is true. There's always, always more to learn. But that deficit thinking is that I cannot possibly have any mastery of this. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to spend the next week just being frantic. Mm-hmm. Whereas my thinking is they wouldn't have asked me if they didn't think I knew something about it. I think I still get organized, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? And the difference is lower blood pressure, mm-hmm. kind of a happy equanimity in life. Mm-hmm. And that's the choice. As you say, you can choose the drama or you can not to choose the drama. So many people, because they come from this deficit thinking, they don't understand what value they bring or they're telling themselves that they are really in a hole and they have the imposter syndrome. You know, somebody's going to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And so then they kind of shovel, 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 trying to get more information in. And the truth is... They already have everything they need. If they didn't, I mean, the Byron Katie, back to the Byron Katie, everything's perfect because it's right here. Mm -hmm. That's knowing your value. Mm -hmm. And then also trusting yourself that you'll be able to figure it out. Your resources, you'll be able to figure it out. And it goes back to to what we were talking about earlier of being brave. You're going to be brave Mm -hmm. because there is that space of where where you are now to where you want to go. And there's that vulnerability of not knowing that uncertainty. But when you're, you know, dial up being brave as you move there. Right. Well, Michelle, our time is up already. Can you believe it? I can't. Could we go for like a double hour of the (laughs) two of us? Because I think it would be so much fun. We'll have to do that one day. (laughs) We will. We'll do like a, we'll do like a telethon. That's what. (laughs) We could break it all down. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you. It's always a pleasure. It's, it's just the most fun thing we do. Yay us. Yay us. Yes. Okay. Own your value and value what you bring. This is not to pit one person against the other. This is about, we can all have different perspectives and what do you make it mean? There's no right or wrong. And it's just like with my clients, we often talk about how there can be a terminology that somebody uses that can be really offensive for somebody and it's not offensive. For instance, I like to call myself a sloth. And for me, it's a very loving thing because I really don't like to move a whole lot. I like to move very slowly. And, but when there's times that, whether if I'm training or when I was an athlete, yes, I wasn't a sloth because I wanted to achieve a certain goal. But I just own that part. And for me, it gave me permission that it was okay that I needed downtime because I was always go, 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 go. So for other people, they may say, well, that's not really nice. For me, it's not a, a mean word. And that's what I'm talking about with what do you make it mean when we talk about value? We've had different perspectives. And now that you've had that, I hope that there's some insight and some thoughts that are going on inside of you to figure out, okay, what does own your value and value what you bring mean for you? And my my thing that I talk often about is, you know, owning your value, owning your worthiness instead of like questioning it. So often my clients struggle with, am I worthy? And instead of struggling with it, like believing that we are worthy, believing that you have value to offer, whether it's with your friends, your family, in your workplace, in your community, and knowing what you have to contribute and where are the areas in your life where you can develop and cultivate and gain more skill. Because really, to be talented at something comes from having practice. It's so easy to believe that, oh, you're just born with talent. It just comes so naturally and easily. Instead of looking at the dedicated work and commitment it takes to create that. So I really invite you to explore what owning your value and valuing what you bring means in your life. There's no right answer. And think about it and think about what what is value, you know, and what does that mean? And, and hero's right because, you know, there's not a human that's more valuable than another. But what is your value? And do you value what you bring in the given circumstances of your life in the different arenas? We all have them. Maybe you really value them in one arena, but maybe not so much in another because you'll discount it because of the people in that arena. So do you own your values? And in all arenas of your life. And that's the work to do, whether it's being a parent, especially of teenagers, that's challenging in your workplace. If you're in a male dominated workplace, if you are a male trying to lead and you may have a story that you're not emotionally intelligent, how can you lead and connect? And what's, what can you offer and bring in that leadership role? Um, in your relationships, whether it's friendships partnerships, romantic relationships, marriages, owning your value instead of having to be everything, right? I think about that old Angele commercial that was in the seventies. I was like, I can bring home the bacon and I can fry it up in a pan because I'm a woman and put a lot of stress on a lot of women, right? Cause we were supposed to do it all right now. And I remember 
probably 15, 20 years ago, I was at the California Women's Conference and this the speaker said to me, she's like, you can do it all. You just have to think of it over the course of a lifetime. It doesn't all have to happen right now in this moment. And often we don't value what we bring because we're thinking we should be able to do it all right now and all of it instead of where do we have great value and where are arenas that maybe we need to practice and cultivate. And maybe there are arenas that we don't even have the bandwidth or even the desire to practice. For a long time, I wasn't interested in learning how to cook. I was way more interested in somebody else feeding me and um, or going out to eat. And then at some point in my life, I decided, ooh, this is an arena where I want to practice. This is an arena I'm willing to commit to. And I gave myself the time to learn. And it's still an ongoing practice. And I value that I can cook and fuel my family to serve them and their needs. Not so interested, as you've heard me talk about like with Karen Walrens about celebrations, not so interested in cooking for other people. And that's a little bit more stress than I want to take on right now because of the stories I have. So own your value and value what you bring. All right, go sign up for my newsletter at www.howshereallydoesit.com. I know your inbox is already fueling, but go sign up. This is a place where you and I can have some offline conversations. You can send me an email back, hit reply, let me know what shows that you've gotten value from or what newsletter when I write those little love letters in the newsletter um, where they resonate. They're just great little messages that I try to send out every week for you, just reminders. And it's a lot of the same stuff that I talk about here, but it's sometimes nice just to have the reminders. And I so appreciate the people that take the time to hit reply and give me feedback about what did what did they get from that newsletter or from that show. So until next time, I'm smiling big for you. Thank you so much for being here with me and listening. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wide awake. Captured in the moment by the beauty all around her, there's no